So this morning we're in Isaiah. Hopefully you still have that open, um, Isaiah 42. We're also going to be in Isaiah 52 and 53 because one of the themes of Isaiah the prophet is this idea that a servant would come. And there's actually a couple different messages that he gives on the servant of God. Isaiah 42, he's talking about the humble servant. Isaiah 53, 52 and 53, he talks about the suffering servant. Isaiah 49, he talks about his servant. So there's this theme that's going throughout the book of Isaiah. As we talked about, Isaiah's a prophet. Isaiah's a prophet, and he's been given a message from God that he gets to give to a, a particular people, to Judah. And actually, Isaiah gets to give it to the royalty in that kingdom. He speaks to kings. Now, one of the cool things that, that I learned about Isaiah this week is that Isaiah was a prominent young man. Like, he was up and coming. He could have been a political figure. He could have done all of these different things. And then, in, as he's 18-ish, God gives him this vision that we read for our prayer of confession. Radically changes his life. If you see God's holiness... If you see angels and seraphim and burning fire and coals, like it's going to radically change your life. And it did for Isaiah. Isaiah then goes and leverages his whole life 40 years telling the people, and some of it is like news that you and I would be excited to share. We'd be like, oh man, there's a servant that's coming, and he's beautiful, and he's good, and he's kind, and he's faithful. Some of it, you and I would be like, I don't know if I want to tell that story, God. You want me to go and tell the king that he's wrong? Like he's beheaded people for spilling a little bit of wine. Like you want me to go tell him he's wrong and that he needs to change his ways? And so Isaiah goes and he's this messenger of God to the people. This morning we're looking at one of these beautiful messages. And man, as I was reading it this week, I was like, God, you are so kind. You are so kind that 700 years before Jesus would come, you tell the people exactly how he's going to come. You tell them what to be watching for. You tell them that he's going to be humble, and he's going to come in meekness, and he's going to see the people that he's coming to save, and he's going to cherish them, and he's going to see their need. And he's not just going to run over them because he has an agenda, but he's going to be compassionate. And he's going to be filled with your spirit and all of your strength. And so you and I would hear that and we would say, how did they miss it then? How did they miss it when Jesus came? Why was he rejected and despised? Well, Isaiah told us in 53 that that's what was going to happen also. And I want us to think about, like, if we were political leaders and we had been given this truth, where would we press into? We would press into strength and power and that he's going to do this radical reformation and this radical revolution, we would not necessarily talk about the meek and humble ways that he would come. Because that just doesn't draw a crowd. And what we see is that God is, is coming for a remnant. For people who would take hold of him by faith. All of what he says. And so this morning, as we look at chapter 42 of Isaiah, I just want us to see the beauty of what Isaiah is preaching to a people that need to hear it. And that wasn't a people 700 years before Christ that just needed to hear it. Us, 3,000 years later, we need to hear this. We need to hear this good news. Eugene Peterson in the message, in his introduction to Isaiah, he says this, For Isaiah, words are watercolors and melodies 
and chisels to make truth and beauty and goodness. Or as the case may be, hammers and swords and scalpels to unmake sin and guilt and rebellion. Isaiah does not merely convey information. He creates visions, delivers revelation, arouses belief. He is a poet in the most fundamental sense, a maker, making God present and that presence urgent. Isaiah is the supreme poet prophet to come out of the Hebrew people. That's what we need today. We need, we need our hearts stirred. We need God to, to recreate in us a heart that would be towards Him, that would be hard after Him, that we would run with our whole lives. Not just moments, not even just an hour and a half on a Sunday morning that we feel like we're sacrificing a lot, but like our whole lives for His glory. We get to do this together. What a gift of God that He would remind us today. Here's the really sweet thing. It doesn't take your intellect or you saying, I need my heart to just really pay attention today. Because the good news is that in each of us, we have the Spirit of God, if we are in Christ. And so this morning, even as we cry out, like He's already stirring that in us, that we would hear His voice, that we would see His face, that this art that Isaiah is chiseling and making, we would be able to behold it. He's already doing that. And so will you pray with me? That we would hear, that we would see, and then that, that, that would actually take root so much in our hearts and in our minds that we would be transformed. That we would leave change today than the way we came in. And some of you guys came in great. Like I saw you. You guys were awesome when you came in. But all of us need to be changed and conformed into the image of Christ because He's so much better. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You, God. We thank You for Your Word. And Lord, that You would speak it to Isaiah that He would write it down, that it would be preserved over 3,000 years, about 3,000 years for us to take hold of and read today and to see the truth of Your beauty and Your kindness. Lord, we can't stir it within ourselves to be able to understand this. We need Your Holy Spirit. We need the, the Word of God to be illuminated so that it would be applied by the Spirit into our own hearts that, that as we read in Jeremiah 33, that you would write your, your word and your law on our hearts. So Lord, we ask that you would do that in and to and through us today. I thank you, Lord, that you are doing this. May we be changed to your image for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 42, again, just so excited this week. I'm reading it, and I'm seeing how clearly it points to the history of redemption. You see, the, the history of redemption isn't just about how God saves Israel and takes them out of slavery and then sets them up as a kingdom, and then even how He's going to bring them back out of exile. That's not, that's not the fullness of the history of redemption. The history of redemption is pointing to a place where you and I would all be free. Not just one people group, but the whole world because of the work of Christ. Verse 42 begins, Behold, chapter 42 begins in verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I've got two hours on this first verse, and then we'll get through the rest of them. Just kidding. 
Griffin looked like, no, you don't. <laughs> but read that again. Look at, look at what it says. God is pleased with a servant who's filled with his spirit. We have this idea that the early church fathers crafted from what they knew about who God was. And they called it the Trinity. It's not, if you, if you do a word search in your Bible, you're not going to find the Trinity written anywhere. But what you are going to have is references to the Father, references to the Son, and references to the Spirit. We believe that our God is a triune God, that He is three in one. He's equal parts, and each of those parts has a, has a function that give glory to the other one. Like, since the beginning of time, these three parts have been glorifying one another and in communion with one another. And so we see it here in this verse. Behold my servant. My servant means that there's somebody else and it's, then the servant is a, is a second person. And then in the third person we see, I have put my spirit upon him. This idea of the Trinity is beautiful. Spurgeon's really helpful. I know that Chris was preaching the other day and he talked about the Spurgeon sermon he read. And I'm telling you, if you get a chance to read some of those, there's a reason why he's called the Prince of Preachers. That dude, he, he just goes after it. But one of the things that he says about this passage is he says, he starts, my text saith, behold my servant. And that matchless servant of God is to be beheld, not with the eye of sense that were little worth, for men saw him in that way and crucified him. But he is to be beheld with the eye of faith. And this is a noble sight. For those who look to him in that manner are lightened, and their faces are not ashamed. At the commencement of my discourse, I beseech you, dear brethren, to look to Jesus Christ, the ever-living worker. If you have been troubled and fretted by peering into these gloomy times and perceiving nothing that can raise your spirits, I pray you look about you no longer, but look up. There he sits at the right hand of God, even the Father, the appointed man, the glorious chosen deliverer. Behold him, and your fears and sorrows will fly away. Right off the bat, Isaiah says, behold my servant. Look to Jesus. Now we're, we're jumping. We're making a conclusion there that this servant is Jesus. But we're going we're gonna to build that out this morning. This idea that the servant of God is his son, that he's sending to do a work of redemption. A work that will bring forth justice to the nations. How is that going to happen? Like how... How is Jesus, the servant of God, going to bring forth justice to the nations? We'll unpack it. I just think that there's so much right here, and I would just encourage you this week, go and look in your Bibles. Look where it says Father, look where it says Son, look where it says Spirit, and do this, do this homework to see, God, who are you? I've heard my pastor, I've heard my school teachers, I've heard other people talk about the Trinity, but I want to to be able to grasp that a little better and to understand it. Like, how do all of these different persons of God work together to work this history of redemption? Jesus the Son has come and worked gospel perfection for you and I. He was obedient to the Father. Where you and I are not obedient, where we've already confessed that to be true, Jesus worked perfect obedience all the way to the cross. And at the cross, He suffered and He died a sinner's death for you and for me. 
This was the plan of God, though, as we're going to see in Isaiah 53. It was the plan of God that, that He would be bruised and broken, that our sin would be laid on Him. And yet He didn't stay dead as He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again, proving victorious over sin and death. And then the Spirit of God is breathed into those who would by faith take hold of Jesus, and God, the work of Jesus is applied to our lives. That is crazy. That's amazing. Something that I didn't deserve or earn, God has given it to me because His Son worked it on my behalf. So the Spirit applies the work of the Son by the plan of the Father. It's amazing. You can spend the rest of your life studying this, and you won't plumb the depths of what it means to be God three persons in one. And yet, here we have it, very succinctly, in one verse. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. One last thing before we leave this verse. It says, in whom my soul delights. The Father delights in the Son. He takes joy when He sees His Son working perfect righteousness for a people that He is going to redeem. He takes joy. And we see it in the, in the baptism. When Jesus comes out of the water, this clouds open up and this voice comes out of the sky and it says, Behold, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The, the Father has always taken delight in the Son. And what we're going to see is that as we are in the Son, grafted into Him by His work, the Father, the Holy God, actually delights in you and in me. He delights in His servant. And because you and I are in Him by faith, He delights in us too. All right, that's the intro that Isaiah gives us. He's talking about the servant who is going to do something. He is going to bring justice. Here's the beauty. Verses 2, 3, and 4 tell us how he goes about this. Not just like the work that he's going to do. I've kind of, kind of given you that. He's going to go to the cross and he's going to work redemption for us who would by faith take hold of him. But look at the way that he does it. Look at the manner that he walks in. Verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. In those two verses, you see this Jesus. And, and you jump to the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And read what they say about Jesus. Read the way that He goes to those that are broken and hurting. The outcasts. And He brings them in. And He says, you that don't have a people, you're My people. You that are hurting and sick and broken, I bring you wholeness and life. No one was too low for him that he would overlook them. No one was too high for him that, that, that he would overlook them. He saw people as they truly were. And he ministered to them in their brokenness even as he knows he's going to do something more fully for them. He sees they're hurting. He sees that they're wounded. This morning, maybe you've come in and you feel lost. Maybe you feel overlooked. I promise you, this same servant that Isaiah is talking about, 
He, will, he has not overlooked you. He sees you in your brokenness. He sees you in your need, and he's meeting those needs. Maybe not in the way that we want, but he's met our needs more fully than you and I can understand by going to the cross and working gospel redemption for us. And he still cares if you don't have food. He still cares if you need a place to live. He still cares if your relationships are broken. Like, that's the God that we have, who, as he's going to do this great work on the cross, he still sees. You see this part about the bruised reed, he will not break. A bruised reed is, like, it's worthless. Who cares? It's just just a little plant, and it's, it's probably going to die anyways because of bruise, but he still cares about even that, and he's not going to break it in the process of going to do this great thing. I think we have ideas of the end justifies the means. That's not in your Bible. You can look, but it's not in your Bible. You see, Jesus cared about not just the means, not, not, not just the end, but the means, how he would go about doing it. And so if you and I are in Christ today, then we also have been called to not just care about the end, but care about the means to which we would go as we get there. It says that a smoldering wick he will not put out, he will not quench. That one's probably a little lost on most of us. I had to look it up, so don't think that I'm super smart. But like as the candle's beginning to burn out, he sees it. And he doesn't just put it out. Doesn't just put it out of its misery. He, he actually sees what's going on and he cares. And he brings healing and he brings fullness, completeness in the process. Even as he's going forth to do this awesome work of justice. That's the God that you and I have. Because if what we talked about in the Trinity is true, then everything that we see in Jesus is also what, who the Father is. Like the, the characteristics don't change between each person of the Trinity. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He's the same in every portion of Himself. What does change is the roles and the way that, that, that God has ordained for the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to work together. But all of them give us the fullness of who He is. That He is... Loving and kind. The purpose of the servant is coming to execute justice. The method of Christ and the way that he does it, he does it not loudly. I've been thinking about that this week and the what would that look like? Not doing it loudly. Do I feel like I have to beat people over the head with the truth of the gospel sometimes? Well my, maybe my children. Noah's back there nodding. And to, and to be honest, like as I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about the gentleness and the lowliness of Christ, there, there's a lot of conviction that comes with that. So I don't, should I, Christ didn't come and he didn't demand, he just offered himself and he said, hey, here's the good way. Here's the path that by faith you can walk in as you believe and trust in me and as you follow me. Following him in that day meant giving up everything else and following him. Whatever it was that you were, you were going to do with your life, when He came through, you gave it up and you followed Him. We try to mingle those two things. We're like, well, I want to do this and follow you. Now, the beauty is that God knows us. He sees us. We already said that so many times this morning. 
So he knows what's in your heart. And often he will incorporate that into following him. Those guys that were fishing, a lot of them still fished and followed him. And they loved it, I guess. Seems weird and stinky, but they, they loved it. And so they followed him. And so God will do that. But, but what, what he's asking for is your supreme devotion. Is he your number one priority or is he number two, three, four, somewhere down the line? And so he calls us to follow him. This is a method of Christ. And, he, and it's just a gentle welcome. Come follow me. Doesn't scream it. Doesn't beat it over their head. Will you turn with me to Isaiah 52 real fast? As we're looking at the way that this servant comes, in Isaiah 52, verse 13, I'm just going to read through this passage, and it's going to be all of 53 also. But I want you to just listen. See the way this servant comes. And then think about how you and I approach sharing this good news with others. If we are in Christ, we're called to do this the same way. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. At first, we're like, yeah, that sounds good. I'll do that. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this, his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his, knowledge, all the right, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many to make intercession for the transgressors. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Like he's not coming loud, he's coming obedient. He walks, even though he he of all people he could defend himself. He can make a statement that says, I do not deserve this treatment or this death of it. He's the only one that can do that, and yet he does not say anything. He walks in perfect obedience. 
to the Father's will. So we're seeing the way that Jesus has come. The second thing that we see, back in chapter 42, he doesn't lift up his voice so that he's heard in the street. And he also doesn't come and and break the bruised reed or faintly uh, quench the faintly burning wick. He comes not forcefully or harshly, but he comes with great compassion. Matthew 11, 29. Many of us probably know this verse. It says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, he's telling his people, "That's, that's how I come. Gentle and lowly to those who are broken and need restoration. Now, he's not afraid to break those that need breaking, but those that are already broken, he comes with a a fullness to them and says, listen, I, I see you. I know you. Come with me. Come eat with me. Like, how many people did Jesus eat with? Simply meeting the needs that they had. Again, the means of his salvation, of his executing justice, is as important as the fact that he executed justice. Finally, we see in verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. You see, Jesus is not half-hearted. Jesus is going to complete the work. He's going to faithfully walk out this work. The servant will be faithful to the master. The son will be faithful to the father's plan. Faithful completion. In verse 11 of Isaiah 53, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He's going to follow through on this plan. 700 years later, after Isaiah makes this proclamation, many people have forgotten about it. Many people, when they heard it, even the first time, said, nah, that's probably not the way it's going to happen. He's going to come. He's going to take over everything. And it's, he's going to bring this utopia. You and I long for that. So we, we can't judge them because that's what we want too. And often when Jesus comes and he says, I'm lowly and meek and humble, follow me. We're like, oh, I really want somebody a little stronger. What we're going to see is that in the same, at the same time as he's saying that, he is strong. But Jesus is faithful to complete the work. Again, Spurgeon encourages us to look at the manner of God's servant Jesus. He says, Note well the spirit in which he works. He is gentleness itself, and that always. A bruised reed he shall not break, and the smoking flax he shall not quench. You cannot work in a hot haste in this spirit. Gentleness makes good and sure speed, but it cannot endure rashness and heat. We know reformers who, if they had the power, would be like bulls in a china shop. They would do a great deal in a very short time. But the world's best friend, that friend is capitalized, is not given to quench and bruise. Here he, Here is a bruised reed, and it is of no use to anybody. You cannot even get music out of it, much less lean upon it, yet he does not break it. Here is a smoking flax, a wick with an offensive smell, containing very little heat and no light, yet he does not put it out. You see, there stands the crucified this day upon the vantage ground, at the right hand of God, and he surveys the battlefield in calm expectancy until his enemies are made his footstool. He's tender towards the weakest of the weak and kind even to the unthankful and the evil. We may see in all his mercifulness the pledge of his success. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait 
for his law. That's where Jesus is. Jesus knows the way that he's going to do the work. He also knows that the work is completed. It will be done. Even as he's gathering his disciples and as he's going to Jerusalem, he knows that the work is going to be done. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, where it seems like everybody's deserting him and abandoning him, Jesus knows that the work, the justice that he's come to execute, he's going to faithfully complete it. And in the process, he sees everyone along the way. The means and the end are the same. Rescue. Redemption. Fullness of life and joy and peace. He wouldn't bring destruction as He's bringing peace. Like he, he knows that the means are just as important as the end. And so He works perfect justice for us. Finally, God speaks about His servant. And He says, Thus says God in verse 5, the Lord of, of chapter 42, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. You see, God's flexing His muscles. As He's talking about the the second person in the Trinity, He's reminding you that everything that you see in Jesus and everything that you see in the Creator God who awesomely and powerfully spoke creation into being, they are one and the same. So don't lose sight as you see Jesus meek and humble and gentle and lowly and full of grace. Don't lose sight that He is also powerful, mighty to save, strong deliverer, the one who created. He was there when when creation happened. Don't forget that in that servant you see the Almighty God. You want to see God remind you of his power and his strength. I love the end of Job. We're not going to, in our history of redemption, we've, we've moved past Job. Job is, is a hard place to put uh, chronologically where it goes. We don't know. But I would encourage you this week, and I know I've already given you two homework assignments. Take this third one. Listen, that's what we're doing. We're doing this together. We can't just come in an hour and a half and you expect uh, me and, or, or me expect you to be able to give us what we need in this moment, like it's the whole pursuit of God we get to do together. So yeah, homework assignment three. Read the end of Job. Job is questioning God, where are you? And then God shows up and he tells him in five chapters of some of the most beautiful, uh, I say sarcasm, I don't know if you would put that on God, but man, it's beautiful. It's so great. He says, were you there when I told the waters they could come to this point and no further? Was that you, Job? Were you there when I spoke to the mountains and, and, and put them where, exactly where they needed to be? What, do you tell the lightning where it should strike? Like all these things that God, the creator, the powerful, the strong God does. Read the end of Job. But we can see it here. Verse 5, who created the heavens and stretched them out? I did that. I made everything. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it? Who gives the the water so that the plants would grow and everything would produce crop? God did that. 
He's saying, listen, in all of this, I am strong and mighty to save. I am the Lord, he speaks to the servant. I have called you in righteousness. God has called his son to work righteousness. We spent some time in the, in the Old Testament law looking at the Ten Commandments, and we realized very quickly we can't meet Ten Commandments. And then we said there's six or seven hundred commandments, and we're like, oh my gosh, I can't do that. I'm going to fail. Good news is you can't do that. You're going to fail. And so God has come, and He sent His Son, who actually was completely obedient to the Father. Not just met the letter of the law, but met the intent of the law. Fulfilled the law. The law and the prophets are fulfilled in the Son. What, you, what was required from you and I to be righteous before a holy God, we couldn't do, but the Son has come. The servant has come and has done that. God says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. God the Father and the God the Son are, are committed to one another. Holding each other. I will give you as a covenant for the people. A light to the nations. This is beautiful. A light to the nations to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. Like This is what God is doing. Read the end of Isaiah. The, when the day of the Lord comes, He's come to free the captives. To rescue. To, to draw all men to Himself. This is what God is doing. And He's doing it through His servant. And the servant that has his name, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. But he gives it to the son. He gives it to the servant. Because they're three in one. It's amazing. It's beautiful. What has God done? God has executed justice. You see, for each of us, at the cross, Jesus takes our sin. He takes the, what you and I deserve because according to the law, if we fall short, there's a death that needs to be paid. Now, in Old Testament times, many of those deaths were presented by the priests and they would be animals and burnt offerings and sacrifices that would be made. Those things were not making the people right. They were pointing to the one who would come and sacrifice and suffer the punishment for them. Who would make everything right? You and I deserve death. Because of our sin. Maybe we think, well, I don't, I don't know if I'd go that far, Joel. Maybe a slap on the wrist or maybe a timeout, but not death. Well, if we understand the holiness of our God, we begin to recognize that, no, actually, I've violated Him in such a way that I deserve death. I deserve to, be, to not be a part of Him. And yet Jesus has come and at the cross, He has taken the death that you and I deserve. And we're like, yeah, but He only did it for three days and then everything's okay. No, He died and He was separated from the Father. This three-in-one God. Holy communion with God. And I don't know, I can't, I can't explain how it all works, but I know that it says that He was separated from the Father because of the sin that He takes on. And so He suffered that separation for you and for me so that you and I would be holy wholly connected to the Father. So that you and I would have His righteousness, that you and I would be in communion with God. He was cast off. 
And so this is the work of justice. Because, you see, if God just glossed over and said, don't even worry about it, guys. I know I gave you all these laws and you, you didn't fulfill them, but we'll just forget about it. No, that wouldn't be justice. And so he comes and he exacts justice. He works justice, just like it's saying in chapter 42. How does he do that? Because his son paid for you and for me. He took our sin and our shame and he took the punishment that was due him at the cross and he gave us righteousness so that you and I could be connected to a holy God, a good God, a powerful God, a strong God. That even today, as he's done this work, he still sees us and he still engages with us. That's the beauty of this message. 700 years before it happens, and it's so clear, and you're like, what in the world? God, this was your plan from the very beginning. Isaiah 53 Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You see, it's not a backup plan. It's not like something that he came up with on the fly. This was the will of God. So that he would receive glory and so that he would redeem a people for himself. Here's the beauty. If, if today you would say, man, I believe that's true. There's something inside of me. The Holy Spirit of God is doing this thing inside of me that says, I believe that. Then today you are in Christ. And by, by that faith, you come into this beautiful relationship with God where His Spirit enters into you and it's doing this new thing where you actually walk in righteousness. Because it's Christ's righteousness being performed in you. And then other people see that and they're like, something weird about them. They're doing, there's, there's a difference in them. And we get to say, no, man, it's, it's not me. Like, I tried to do it myself and I failed miserably. But now, because of my hope in Jesus, He's doing this thing in me. If you see anything good, it's Jesus. If you see anything beautiful in the way that I would treat people or see people, it's Jesus. It's not me. Even now, I'm, I'm arguing like there's a war taking place inside of me that wants me to be like, yeah, Joel's really good. But no, he's not. If you see anything in me, it's Jesus. Anything that's praiseworthy. Anything that's good because of the Spirit of God that is doing this work in His people. Isaiah 61, later on in the book. This is the promise of the new thing. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. As we take hold of Christ and put our faith in Him, we become this. You and I, today, we become liberators. We become those who take this good news to people that are lost and are in dark places and we get to share that good news and they're liberated and they're set free if they would put their hope and their trust in Christ. This is what we are invited to. This is the redemption story that's taking place. 
We talked about it in the beginning. It's not a redemption just for Israel. It's a redemption for all of mankind worked by the Son, by the servant, by the one God is pleased with. He comes to rescue not just Israel in a temporary form where we saw, man, that was amazing when God went into Egypt and rescued His people who were slaves there and freed them. And then they went into the desert, into the wilderness for 40 years, but eventually... They were a free people governing themselves and were like, that's amazing. It is amazing. The history of redemption is so much more than that. That's one part of this story that is pointing to a fullness of redemption that will be found in Christ. And today you and I look back and we see what Christ has done, but we also look forward to where one day this history of redemption, we're going to be freed completely. Freed from sin, freed from brokenness, freed from sickness. And maybe some of you today are sick. I I just believe that God's word is true and he can free us even now. Now, sometimes he won't. Sometimes he leaves us in that place of dependence and suffering for his glory where we have to cling to him. But sometimes he does this miraculous work of freedom. We believe that he can. And he's doing all of this. And one day, I, I promise... If you're in Christ, one day you will be free. One day you'll be free to see Him fully and clearly. One day in heaven, whether that's here on earth or whether that's somewhere else, I, I, I think He's recreating all things new here on earth. I don't know how that, how that works out. I just know He's going to come back. And he's going to do this thing. One day I'm going to see Jesus face to face and all of these other things are just going to fall away. And I'll see the one that I've longed for. I'll see the one that I've beheld faintly through a a glass dimly. And I'll see him fully. And it will change like everything. It would be so great. I long for that day. But I don't have to wait for that day. I know that it's true now. I have the promise of his word now. So what does all this mean for us today? The humble servant has come and he's completed the work. We talked about it. Justice has actually been satisfied by Jesus for you and for me and for all those who would put their hope and their faith in him. Our debt is paid and our guilt has been forgiven. Today, some of you have forgotten that and you've been walking around in guilt and shame. If you are in Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. There's a remembering, yep, I I am, I still fail, I still walk in sin, I'm broken in some places, but, but I know that Christ has forgiven me even for the things that would happen tomorrow. I know that I have been set free and forgiven. Our debt is paid and our guilt has been forgiven and it's been done completely. As we look at the finished work of Christ, it's a complete work. You and I are free from the dungeon of sin, uh, of sin and darkness and we're brought into the marvelous light of Christ and His Holy Spirit. And so what is our response then? Well, our response is to remember. And as we remember, that should stir in us joy and praise and honor. And it should stir in us a desire to walk in His ways. To do that, we have to know what those ways are. We need to be reading His Word. We need to be praying, crying out, God, will you do this work? Will you complete this work in me? Even as you complete it in your Son, would you work in me by the power of your Spirit? We rejoice because those who are in Christ by faith, we please God. That's the thing. We hinted on it in the beginning, but today if you would take hold of Christ by faith, 
When the Father looks at you, He's pleased. Can you imagine that? A holy God sees you. And some of you are really great. And yet still, compared to a holy God, you fall way short. (laughs) Way short. But when He sees you now, He's pleased because He sees in you the work of His Son. I've used the reference before, but I'll use it again because it's so good. There's a whiteboard, and on it is all of your sin. And we think that it would be good enough just if God would just wipe it clean, just wipe it, just put nothing on it. But today, if you're in Christ, it's not just wiped clean, but then He goes and He writes in His blood and in His, in his red all of the beauty of Christ. Perfect obedience to the Father. Sees the, the broken and heals them. Like everything that Christ is today, if you are in Christ, that's what the Father sees in you. That's amazing. We don't have enough whiteboards, and this building has a lot of whiteboards, and we don't have enough to fill up the work and righteousness of Christ. And today, when God looks at you, if you have taken hold of Christ by faith, he's pleased. That's beautiful. That should stir in us, even, even a desire to make that more evident to the world. God, would you make more of those things reality in me? I would encourage you to look to the glory of the humble and suffering servant who brings mercy and judgment. You see, this story is not about us, and I'm, I'm talking about some of the implications and, and application of this word for us. But really, the story is about Jesus. What has Jesus done? He has come, and he has executed justice. Now, He's continuing to do that. So even you you and I walking in obedience, walking in grace, walking in the fruit of the Spirit is pointing to Jesus. He's the story that we love. He's the story that we tell. He's the story that we get to gather in all different moments and rejoice in and celebrate. I would encourage you this week. Next couple weeks, next week we're in Psalms, but then after that, during our uh, Advent series, We're just going to continue in this history of redemption, but we're going to actually see Jesus in in the Scriptures as He comes and as He sees the brokenhearted and as He walks and He's born of of the Virgin Mary, right? And it's it's a birth that just kind of gets overlooked. And then He goes to the cross and He dies and He's resurrected. Like all of it is is a work of redemption for you and I. And so we've been telling this story for a couple months now. I got good news. We're going to tell this story for the rest of our lives for eternity. Like the rest of our lives, that's small. Eternity, that's forever. And you and I get to bask in this and rejoice in it. Let's sing the songs now. Don't wait. Do it now. Because God is so great. And He's done this great work for us by His chosen servant. It should be, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is what God is doing doing a work for His glory and for our good. Let's rejoice in that today. Lord, we thank You. Lord, who are we that You would be so kind to us? That You would graft us in by the work of Your Son. And so today we rejoice, Lord. We remember Jesus. We remember the grace that we've received because of the gospel work of Jesus that on the cross He took our sin and our shame and He gave us His righteousness, that by faith today we come to a holy God, cleansed, restored, righteous. Lord, thank You for the filling of the Spirit 
And all of us who would take hold of you by faith, Lord, that you dwell inside of us and that you're making all things new. That you're creating in us not only good works, but right motives, a right heart. Lord, you're writing your law in our heart to where we would long to please you even as you are already pleased with us because of the work of your Son. Lord, thank you that as we get to take communion now, we remember that the work on the cross was a costly work. It costs you your Son. And He purchased at great price to, to yourself. You purchased us by your shed blood, by your body that was given for us, Lord. So I just pray that even now we would move into a time of rejoicing, time of celebrating, Lord, and that that time wouldn't stop uh, on Sunday mornings, but it would actually go throughout our whole week, Lord, that we would be so filled with the joy of our salvation from a good God who has saved us, Lord, that we would tell others in every hour of every day about it. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.